Section 17 of Institutes of the Christian Religion, Book 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sean F. Sawyers. Institutes of the Christian Religion, Book 1, by John Calvin. Translated by Henry Beveridge. Chapter 11, Part 1. Impiety of attributing a visible form to God. The setting up of idols. A defection from the true God. There are three leading divisions in this chapter. The first contains a refutation of those who ascribe a visible form to God, sections 1 and 2, with an answer to the objection of those who, because it is said that God manifested his presence by certain symbols, use it as a defense of their error, sections 3 and 4. Various arguments are afterwards adduced, disposing of the trite objection from Gregory's expression that images are the books of the unlearned, sections 5 through 7. The second division of the chapter relates to the origin of idols or images, and the adoration of them as a proof of the papists, section 8 through 10. Their evasion refuted, section 11. The third division treats of the use and abuse of images, section 12. Whether it is expedient to have them in Christian churches, section 13. The concluding part contains a refutation of the second council of Nice, which very absurdly contends for images in opposition to divine truth and even to the disparagement of the Christian name. Sections 1. God is opposed to idols, that all may know he is the only fit witness to himself. He expressly forbids any attempt to represent him by a bodily shape. 2. Reasons for this prohibition from Moses, Isaiah, and Paul. The complaint of a heathen. It should put the worshippers of idols to shame. 3. Consideration of an objection taken from various passages in Moses. The cherubim and seraphim show that images are not fit to represent divine mysteries. The cherubim belong to the tutelage of the law. 4. The materials of which idols are made abundantly refute the fiction of idolaters. Confirmation from Isaiah and others. Absurd precaution of the Greeks. 5. Objection. That images are the books of the unlearned. Objection answered. 1. Scripture declares images to be teachers of vanity and lies. 6. Answer continued. 2. Ancient theologians condemn the formation and worship of idols. 7. Answer continued. 3. The use of images condemned by the luxury and meretricious ornaments given to them in popish churches. 4. The church must be trained in true piety by another method. The second division of the chapter, Origin of Idols or Images, its rise shortly after the flood, its continual progress. 9. Of the worship of images, its nature, a pretext of idolaters refuted, pretext of the heathen, genius of idolaters. 10. Evasion of the papists, their agreement with ancient idolaters. 11. Refutation of another evasion or sophism, viz. the distinction of Dulia and Latria. 12. Third division of the chapter, viz. the use and abuse of images. 13. Whether it is expedient to have images in Christian temples. 14. Absurd defense of the worship of images by the second so-called Council of Nice. 
sophisms or perversions of scripture in defense of images in churches. 15. Passages adduced in support of the worship of images. 16. The blasphemous expressions of some ancient idolaters approved by not a few of the more modern, both in word and deed. 1. As scripture, in accommodation to the rude and gross intellect of man, usually speaks in popular terms, so whenever its object is to discriminate between the true God and false deities, it opposes him in particular to idols. Not that it approves of what is taught more elegantly and subtly by philosophers, but that it may the better expose the folly, nay, madness of the world in its inquiries after God, so long as everyone clings to his own speculations. This exclusive definition, which we uniformly meet with in Scripture, annihilates every deity which men frame for themselves of their own accord. God himself being the only fit witness to himself. Meanwhile, seeing that this brutish stupidity has overspread the globe, men longing after visible forms of God, and so forming deities of wood and stone, silver and gold, or of any other dead and corruptible matter, we must hold it as a first principle that as often as any form is assigned to God, his glory is corrupted by an impious lie. In the law, accordingly, after God had claimed the glory of divinity for himself alone, when he comes to show what kind of worship he approves and rejects, he immediately adds, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or in the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. Exodus 24. By these words he curbs any licentious attempt we might make to represent him by a visible shape, and briefly enumerates all the forms by which superstition had begun, even long before, to turn his truth into a lie. For we know that the sun was worshipped by the Persians. As many stars as the foolish nation saw in the sky, so many gods they imagined them to be. Then to the Egyptians, every animal was a figure of God. The Greeks, again, plumbed themselves on their superior wisdom in worshipping God under the human form. But God makes no comparison between images, as if one were more and another less befitting. He rejects, without exception, all shapes and pictures and other symbols by which the superstitious imagine they can bring him near to them. 2. This may easily be inferred from the reasons which he annexes to his prohibition. First. It is said in the books of Moses, Deuteronomy 4.15, Take ye therefore good heed unto yourselves. For ye saw no manner of similitude in the day that the Lord spake unto you in Horeb, out of the midst of the fire, lest ye corrupt yourselves, and make you a graven image, the similitude of any figure, etc. We see how plainly God declares against all figures, to make us aware that all longing after such visible shapes is rebellion against him. Of the prophets, it will be sufficient to mention Isaiah, who is the most copious on this subject. Isaiah 40, 18, 41, 7, and 29, 45, 9, 46, 5. In order to show how the majesty of God is defiled by an absurd and indecorous fiction, when he who is incorporeal is assimilated to corporeal matter, 
he who is invisible to a visible image, he who is a spirit to an inanimate object, and he who fills all space to a bit of paltry wood or stone or gold. Paul, too, reasons in the same way. For as much, then, as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone, graven by art and man's device. Acts 17.29 Hence it is manifest that whatever statues are set up or pictures painted to represent God are utterly displeasing to him as a kind of insult to his majesty. And is it strange that the Holy Spirit thunders such responses from heaven when he compels even blind and miserable idolaters to make a similar confession on the earth? Seneca's complaint, as given by Augustine de Kibbet, de C. Tim, is well known. He says, The sacred, immortal, and invisible gods they exhibit in the meanest and most ignoble materials, and dress them in the clothing of men and beasts. Some confound the sexes, and form a compound out of different bodies, giving the name of deities to objects, which, if they were met alive, would be deemed monsters. Hence, again, it is obvious that the defenders of images resort to a paltry, quibbling evasion when they pretend that the Jews were forbidden to use them on account of their proneness to superstition, as if a prohibition which the Lord founds on his eternal essences and the uniform course of nature could be restricted to a single nation. Besides, when Paul refuted the error of giving a bodily shape to God, he was addressing not Jews, but Athenians. It is true that the Lord occasionally manifested his presence by certain signs, so that he was said to be seen face to face, but all the signs he ever employed were in apt accordance with the scheme of doctrine, and, at the same time, gave plain intimation of his incomprehensible essence. For the cloud and smoke and flame, though they were symbols of heavenly glory, Deuteronomy 4.11, curbed men's minds as with a bridle that they might not attempt to penetrate farther. Therefore, even Moses, to whom of all men God manifested himself most familiarly, was not permitted, though he prayed for it, to behold that face, but received for answer that the refulgence was too great for man. Exodus 33.20 The Holy Spirit appeared under the form of a dove, but as it instantly vanished, who does not see that in this symbol of a moment, the faithful were admonished to regard the Spirit as invisible, to be contented with his power and grace, and not call for any external figure. God sometimes appeared in the form of a man, but this was in anticipation of the future revelation in Christ, and, therefore, did not give the Jews the least pretext for setting up a symbol of deity under the human form. The mercy seat also, Exodus 25:17. 18 and 21, where, under the law, God exhibited the presence of his power, was so framed as to intimate that God is best seen when the mind rises in admiration above itself. The cherubim with outstretched wings shaded, and the veil covered it, while the remoteness of the place was in itself a sufficient concealment. It is therefore mere infatuation to attempt to defend images of God and the saints by the example of the cherubim. For what, pray, did these figures mean 
if not that images are unfit to represent the mysteries of God, since they were so formed as to cover the mercy seat with their wings, thereby concealing the view of God, not only from the eye, but from every human sense, and curbing presumption. To this we may add that the prophets depict the seraphim, who are exhibited to us in vision as having their faces veiled, thus intimating that the refulgence of the divine glory is so great that even the angels cannot gaze upon it directly, while the minute beams which sparkle in the face of angels are shrouded from our view. Moreover, all men of sound judgment acknowledge that the cherubim in question belong to the old tutelage of the law. It is absurd, therefore, to bring them forward as an example for our age. For that period of puerility, if I may so express it, to which such rudiments were adapted, has passed away. And surely it is disgraceful that heathen writers should be more skillful interpreters of scripture than the papists. Juvenal holds up the Jews to derision for worshipping the thin clouds and firmament. This he does perversely and impiously. Still, in denying that any visible shape of deity existed among them, he speaks more accurately than the papists who prate about there having been some visible image. In the fact that the people every now and then rushed forth with boiling haste in pursuit of idols, just like water gushing forth with violence from a copious spring, let us learn how prone our nature is to idolatry, that we may not, by throwing the whole blame of a common vice upon the Jews, be led away by vain and sinful enticements to sleep the sleep of death. 4. To the same effect are the words of the psalmist, Psalm 115.4, 135.15. Their idols are silver and gold, the works of men's hands. From the materials of which they are made, he infers that they are not gods, taking it for granted that every human device concerning God is a dull fiction. He mentions silver and gold rather than clay or stone, that neither splendor nor cost may procure reverence to idols. He then draws a general conclusion that nothing is more unlikely than that gods should be formed of any kind of inanimate matter. Man is forced to confess that he is but the creature of a day, and yet would have the metal which he has deified to be regarded as God. Whence had idols their origin but from the will of man? There was ground, therefore, for the sarcasm of the heathen poet. I was once the trunk of a fig tree, a useless log, when the tradesman, uncertain whether he should make me a stool, etc., chose rather that I should be a god. In other words, an earth-born creature who breathes out his life almost every moment is able by his own device to confer the name and honor of deity on a lifeless trunk. But as that Epicurean poet, in indulging his wit, had no regard for religion without attending to his jeers or those of his fellows, let the rebuke of the prophet sting, nay, cut us to the heart, when he speaks of the extreme infatuation of those who take a piece of wood to kindle a fire to warm themselves, bake bread, roast or boil flesh, and out of the residue make a god, before which they prostrate themselves as suppliants. Isaiah 44.16 Hence, the same prophet, 
in another place, not only charges idolaters as guilty in the eye of the law, but upbraids them for not learning from the foundations of the earth, nothing being more incongruous than to reduce the immense and incomprehensible deity to the stature of a few feet. And yet, experience shows that this monstrous proceeding, though palpably repugnant to the order of nature, is natural to man. It is, moreover, to be observed that by the mode of expression which is employed, every form of superstition is denounced, being works of men. They have no authority from God. Isaiah 2, 8, 31, 7, Hosea 14, 3, Micah 5, 13. And, therefore, it must be regarded as a fixed principle that all modes of worship devised by man are detestable. The infatuation is placed in a still stronger light by the psalmist, Psalm 115.8, when he shows how aid is implored from dead and senseless objects by beings who have been endued with intelligence for the very purpose of enabling them to know that the whole universe is governed by divine energy alone. But as the corruption of nature hurries away all mankind collectively and individually into this madness, the spirit at length thunders forth a dreadful imprecation. They that make them are like unto them. So is everyone that trusteth in them. And it is to be observed that the thing forbidden is likeness, whether sculptured or otherwise. This disposes of the frivolous precaution taken by the Greek church. They think they do admirably because they have no sculptured shape of deity, while none go greater lengths in the licentious use of pictures. The Lord, however, not only forbids any image of himself to be erected by a statuary, but to be formed by any artist whatever, because every such image is sinful and insulting to his majesty. 5. I am not ignorant, indeed, of the assertion, which is now more than threadbare, that images are the books of the unlearned. So said Gregory. But the Holy Spirit goes a very different decision. And had Gregory got his lesson in this matter in the Spirit's school, he never would have spoken as he did. For when Jeremiah declares that the stock is a doctrine of vanities, Jeremiah 10.8, and Habakkuk, that the molten image is a teacher of lies, the general doctrine to be inferred certainly is that everything respecting God which is learned from images is futile and false. If it is to be objected that the censure of the prophets is directed against those who perverted images to purposes of impious superstition, I admit it to be so. But I add, what must be obvious to all, that the prophets utterly condemn what the papists hold to be an undoubted axiom, viz. that images are substitutes for books. For they contrast images with the true God, as if the two were of an opposite nature and never could be made to agree. In the passages which I lately quoted, the conclusion drawn is that seeing there is one true God whom the Jews worship, visible shapes made for the purpose of representing him are false and wicked fictions. And all, therefore, who have recourse to them for knowledge are miserably deceived. In short, were it not true that all such knowledge is fallacious and spurious, the prophets would not condemn it in such general terms. This, at least, I maintain, that when we teach that all human attempts to give a visible shape to God are vanity and lies, 
we do nothing more than state verbatim what the prophets taught. 6. Moreover, let Lactantius and Eusebius be read on this subject. These writers assume it as an indisputable fact that all the beings whose images were erected were originally men. In like manner, Augustine distinctly declares that it is unlawful not only to worship images, but to dedicate them. And in this he says no more than had been long before decreed by the Libertine Council, the 36th canon of which is, There must be no pictures used in churches. Let nothing which is adored or worshipped be painted on walls. But the most memorable passage of all is that which Augustine quotes in another place from Varro, and in which he expressly concurs. Those who first introduced images of the gods both took away fear and brought in error. Were this merely the saying of Varro, it might perhaps be of little weight, though it might well make us ashamed that a heathen groping as it were in darkness should have attained to such a degree of light as to see that corporeal images are unworthy of the majesty of God, and that because they diminish reverential fear and encourage error. The sentiment itself bears witness that it was uttered with no less truth than shrewdness. But Augustine, while he borrows it from Varro, adduces it as conveying his own opinion. At the outset, indeed, he declares that the first errors into which men fell concerning God did not originate with images, but increased with them, as if new fuel had been added. Afterwards, he explains how the fear of God was thereby extinguished or impaired, his presence being brought into contempt by foolish and childish and absurd representations. The truth of this latter remark I wish we did not so thoroughly experience. Whosoever, therefore, is desirous of being instructed in the true knowledge of God must apply to some other teacher than images. 7. Let papists, then, if they have any sense of shame, henceforth desist from the futile plea that images are the books of the unlearned, a plea so plainly refuted by innumerable passages of Scripture. And yet were I to admit the plea, it would not be a valid defense of their peculiar idols. It is well known what kind of monsters they obtrude upon us as divine. For what are the pictures or statues to which they have append the names of saints, the exhibition of the most shameless luxury or obscenity? For any one to dress himself after their model, he would deserve the pillory. Indeed, brothels exhibit their inmates more chastely and modestly dressed than churches do images intended to represent virgins. The dress of the martyrs is in no respect more becoming. Let papists, then, have some little regard to decency in decking their idols, if they would give the least plausibility to the false allegation that they are books of some kind of sanctity. But even then, we shall answer that this is not the method in which the Christian people should be taught in sacred places. Very different from these follies is the doctrine in which God would have them to be there instructed. His injunction is that the doctrine common to all should be set forth by the preaching of the word and the administration of the sacraments, a doctrine to which little heed can be given by those whose eyes are carried to and fro gazing at idols. And who are the unlearned whose rudeness admits of being taught by images only? Just those whom the Lord acknowledges for his disciples. 
those whom he honors with a revelation of his celestial philosophy and desires to be trained in the saving mysteries of his kingdom. I confess, indeed, as matters now are, there are not a few in the present day who cannot want such books. But, I ask, whence this stupidity? But just because they are defrauded of the only doctrine which was fit to instruct them. The simple reason why those who had the charge of churches resigned the office of teaching to idols was because they themselves were dumb. Paul declares that by the true preaching of the gospel, Christ is portrayed in a manner crucified before our eyes. Galatians 3, 1. Of what use, then, were the erection in churches of so many crosses of wood and stone, silver and gold, if this doctrine were faithfully and honestly preached? This, Christ died, that he might bear our curse upon the tree, that he might expiate our sins by the sacrifice of his body, wash them in his blood, and, in short, reconcile us to God the Father. From this one doctrine, the people would learn more than from a thousand crosses of wood and stone. As for crosses of gold and silver, it may be true that the avaricious give their eyes and minds to them more eagerly than to any heavenly instructor. End of section 17. Recording by Sean F. Sawyers, St. Louis, Missouri.